Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That is me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize my mug or my voice from being the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, where each week we interview famous celebrities, thought leaders, business titans, best-selling authors, military leaders, and people perhaps that may not be household names, but have done something especially noteworthy or suffered perhaps some setback or trauma. And from their learning and insights, we're all better leaders. And what we found after nearly 250 episodes of that podcast and becoming the world's largest, it wasn't always the biggest named celebrity or the household named author that got the most downloads, reviews, or likes. It was often people like you and I and today's guests that have had a remarkable but relatable career, and people were fascinated on the lessons they could tease out from that person's journey. Not sure about you, but Matthew McConaughey is an icon, but his career is quite unique. So we decided to spin off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where today our guest is Sharon Price John. She is the president and CEO of Build-A-Bear Workshops, a company all of us have likely spent some money at if we have a child or a grandchild or a niece, a nephew, a neighbor, or any last-minute birthday party we perhaps attended. And today, Sharon, I'm delighted to feature a conversation with you. Welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you. So happy to be here. I mean, what a fun job on the surface you have. I'm sure there have been lots of uh, uh, challenges in the last couple of years. We'll talk about those as well. And I told you off air that um, although I have three sons that are 8, 10, and 12, and they don't currently own any bears from your company, I'm sure they've been to some at many birthday parties. They certainly know the brand. Uh, They saw a line in your previous bio about some previous careers you have, including a stint with Nerf and other um, toys. Will you take a few minutes and reorient our listeners and viewers to your own career journey that has now led you to nearly 10 years at the helm of Build-A-Bear? Yeah, thank you. Um, That's really fun. I've worked in the toy industry for a long time and have touched so many brands that um, I can usually find at least one brand that someone relates to. I'm glad to hear that Nerf is the one for your your sons. Um, but that was uh, after um, being in the advertising industry in New York, followed by getting an MBA uh, at Columbia, um, and then went to Mattel for about five years where I worked on another iconic brand called Barbie and worked on the Disney business as well. Uh, with a little bit of time in Paris as an expat. Um, And then I'll jump forward to a few years later where I was at Hasbro, where uh, Nerf resides (laughs) as a brand, as well as a number of other iconic brands and licenses, including um, Transformers, uh, My Little Pony, and Star Wars as a long-term license, inclusive of also the Marvel business. So a lot of interesting experiences. Um, Nerf uh, was a lot of fun. Uh, It was a turnaround process. And one of the brands where I learned how to turn around brands and business units. And uh, after being the head of the US toy division uh, was the head of uh, the preschool and play school division that also required a financial turnaround. And shortly thereafter was recruited to the Stride Right Children's Group that eventually became a part of Wolverine Worldwide, um, where again, that was a a financial turnaround that included specialty retail. So 
you can sort of see the path of all of that coming together to make me um, you know, a viable candidate uh, to be the CEO of Build-A-Bear, something that is specialty retail, toys, moms and kids, event-driven, a lot of things in common that prepared me for this opportunity in 2013. You know, again, off air, we were talking prior to going live today, we mentioned that Franklin Covey and Build-A-Bear, although very different businesses, have very similar missions. And that is, we may not be saving lives, but we're certainly changing and improving lives. Us, primarily the lives of adults, although we're certainly in schools and school districts, and you, of course, bringing joy and delight and comfort to uh, kids and parents alike. Uh, we'll talk a lot about Build-A-Bear today, but first let's talk about toys. For everyone who's obviously in the business of buying toys, what makes a good toy? Like what are some of the, the, the iconic toys that have similarities? What makes a successful toy? Um, I think that there are some, uh, some similar attributes that hold that construct together. It, it's things that often uh, evoke imagination in the child. Um, there's usually two kinds of toys, ones that, ones that are open-ended and ones that are closed, uh, kind of a closed play pattern. Um, the toys that often resonate for multiple generations have an open-endedness to them that evolves as the child does when the child ages or that includes a real open-endedness for just imagination and imaginative play. Um, Barbie is that, uh, as well as Build-A-Bear, um, because the, the consumer, the child, um, is able to place a lot of their own belief structures or create friendships with this, these particular toys, and that's what makes them so special. Um, and, but even in some of the more uh, play that is uh, preconceived, like with a Lego, um, that's still open-endedness of what you can create. Um, so I believe that that is an important part of what uh, provides some lasting power, stories, imagination, and open-endedness. Um, now, Build-A-Bear, though, uh, is not just a toy, as you mentioned. Our mention is to add a little more heart to life. And we do that uh, across a number of different fronts. Um, we're no more just a teddy bear company than you're just a speech company, you know, and uh, we think that that's part of what provides Build-A-Bear with so much opportunity. 40% of our sales are now to teens and adults for affinity products, collectible products. We're very much a gifting product. We co-brand with some of the best licenses in the world. People love the mashup of our two brands and being that we're 25 years old, that we just celebrated our, our, our gather gala for our silver anniversary, we're multi-generational and we, we do touch a lot of people's hearts and lives. Okay, Sharon, for that last person in the cave that has not had a Build-A-Bear experience, take a minute or two and walk us through what that experience is like. In fact, you use that word experience to describe the, the family of Build-A-Bear, clients and vendors and, and alliances. Walk us through what happens when someone has a Build-A-Bear experience. Well, you can have a lot of different kinds of Build-A-Bear experiences because we don't just manifest as a retail store or an experience location, which is what we would call it. Um, and we also have a very robust dot-com business and digital business, as well as entertainment and outbound licensing in different categories. 
whether that's um, bedding or bikes or pet toys. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to experience Build-A-Bear. Um, and, uh, but I'm, in reference to the experience locations or what would be our workshops um, that made Build-A-Bear famous and then also uh, is the beginnings often of the creation of that emotional connection that we have with so many people. Um, it's you, you come into the, the, the location, which could be almost anywhere at this point, a tourist location, a hospitality location on a cruise ship. Yes, and still in a mall, um, but not as much as that would have been in the past from a, um, from a percentage perspective, because families go for different places for fun and entertainment today than they did in 1997. So it's our job to be where the consumer is. Um, but you pick out your furry friend and then you um, are provided a, a wide array of options on how you can dress or uh, add elements to it from stuffers, sounds, scents, um, and you go through what's stuffing process at this great big machine. Um, but often the thing that people remember the most is what we call the heart ceremony where you're adding in a little satin, red, often satin-like heart, um, and the bear builder, which is the, the person that helps you through this process, very personalized, very one-to-one, -one, um, asks that you get very engaged in adding different personality attributes or wishes or anything that you want to put inside of this um, furry friend that you're making. And it is at that moment you see the emotion come out uh, for consumers and for younger kids, you know, it's almost as if that's the moment that that bear is imbued with these special attributes and almost comes to life for them and becomes a friend for, for life. Um, teddy bears play a special role in, uh, in people's lives and have for decades. And we're proud to be a part of that. Now, We've had over 225 million furry friends made at a Build-A-Bear somewhere uh, in the globe. <laughs> it is a touching experience. I'm glad you took the time to walk us through that. Uh, let's talk about uh, sort of self-disruption and evolution, right? I mean, I know Build-A-Bear as a mall experience, uh, you know, uh, with three young boys now. We see them occasionally. I've been in a mall maybe twice in the last 10 years, and I'm a retail shopper. But, I, of course, the mall apocalypse has had a massive impact on how you all have pivoted and reinvented yourself. Well, will you talk a bit about kind of over the last maybe decade? Because I'm guessing primarily at one point you were a mall experience. Will you talk about how um, the pandemic how the retail landscape has shifted, how consumer preferences, how your buying demographic has shifted. What have you done to build a level of uh, resilience and almost self-disruption? I mean, if you look at your revenue, what you've done between 2021 and 2022 is remarkable. Everyone, of course, had a bit of a decline during the pandemic, but you'd argue that your company is on extraordinary growth right now. What are some of the lessons you could teach our listeners on what you've done in your team to really make sure that you were ahead of the curve of what was uh, a difficult environment for all retailers that were mall-based. Yeah, the, the difficult environment from a retail perspective uh, was in some ways a hangover from the recession of 2010 and, and malls were hit particularly hard at that point. Um, and then again, um, the followed 
got to, you know, in 2013, 14, 15, um, a little bit of what they have now called the retail apocalypse. Um, yeah. And with the mall apocalypse that you referred to now, um, and we have had a, a, a really powerful uh, couple, past couple of years. In fact, um, 2021 was the most profitable year in our history. And on our recent call, we announced that our expectation was to um, have yet the most profitable year in our history again. Um, so it it's important to understand that we were already well ahead of some of these uh, more disruptive, to your point, activities, and um, that we had started to make a lot of those shifts. Um, There's been, it's easy to sort of look at our most recent trajectory and apply that to, oh, it's a post-COVID bounce. Um, But when we've continued it into the following year, um, people are now asking, you know, a little more of a deeper question and contemplating it at a different level, even though we've been very clear in our opinion that we've shared the strategic intent over the course of of some time. Um, For multiple years now, we've talked about that the most powerful attribute and asset that we have is the brand and the brand relationship that we have with consumers. And from that brand, from the power of that brand, we're able to stretch the company in a lot of different ways and evolve the company. So if you think about it on the two sides of this physical retail arm and that, that drives this incredible relationship that we have and are afforded with guests, um, that then gives us this permission to push into new categories or offer different opportunities or stretch into you know, whether that's giftables or uh, entertainment, as I was mentioning. And then when we touch the consumer with those types of interfaces and engagements, it raises the, the top of mind awareness for a brand and you want to come back to the store. So there's sort of this virtual circle that we're creating a value. Um, and that combined with the evolution of our retail locations, our experience locations, and recognizing that we needed to create a number of different business models, a number of different um, approaches to thinking through where not only our consumers now going, but where do we expect them to go? How can we create an experience online that isn't just transactional, something that's uh, appropriate for our brand, the consumer would engage with and involve? needing to be mobile first. Everything's been upgraded, evolved, digital transformation for us to participate fairly in not only the digital economy, but the evolution of the physical retail, which I think now is being recognized after quite some uh, a, a circuitous route as, uh, as an asset when run well and completely integrated with your digital engagements. Sharon, let's talk about uh, recruitment and retention of associates. Not meant to be a quiz. About how many experience workshops do you have in the U.S.? About? Uh, a, a little over 350. 300. So, okay. so 300 yeah. bricks and mortar stores you can go to in a variety of locations. And, and as you talked about the journey of the customer in that experience workshop, I'm guessing that 
the people you have in the stores are an enormous part of your value proposition. I, I don't know that a lot of retailers, it really matters what your checkout person is like. You want them to be courteous and on time and you know whatever, but I don't know that buying my milk at Target is better or worse because of the nature of the checkout person, not to, not, not to call out Target in any way. We shop there frequently. But I'm guessing in your organization, it's highly important that you recruit and retain the right people when it's hard to both recruit and retain people, especially in a retail environment. As you were talking about the process of putting the heart in and, 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 and kind of the ceremony, I haven't been through it recently in decades, but what are you doing at Build-A-Bear to make sure that you do recruit and retain that associate that all eyes are on, the parents, the party goers, the child, the adult, because I'm guessing it's more than just the bear, it's how your customer feels treated in these hundreds of stores. What are you doing that perhaps other retailers, for that matter, other employers might learn from? Well, first I would say that uh, our mission statement, as I mentioned, of adding a little more heart to life, although that is consumer facing, that's not the only way we think about the dedication to that statement. Um, that's true with our employees, our bear builders, our warehouse workers, our, our vendors. We really try to bring the values of Build-A-Bear to everything that we do. Um, and first, we're very transparent about what the expectations are. Um, and we hope to create that a, a, a environment that people that would probably do well at Build-A-Bear are the people that apply to Build-A-Bear. Um, you, being the brand that we are with a 93% brand awareness, and a lot of people have been through this process, most people that apply for a store level position at Build-A-Bear have an idea that they're probably going to be working with children. It's probably going to be busy. Um, we have a robust training process. Um, and there is a lot of expectation uh, for what is achieved at that particular level, because you are 100% right when you say that a consumer or a guest, as we would call them, um, assesses ultimately their trip in many ways to an experience location based on that one-to-one -one experience that's so important. And from a brand perspective, again, that relationship that we ultimately do create, whether they're join our loyalty club or we have the first party data or we reach out and engage with them when their child's birthday is coming up, that starts with that personal relationship. Um, whether you have a great birthday party or a not so great birthday party experience has a lot to do with what that bear builder does or does not do. So we place a tremendous amount of value on what that, what that their builder is uh, um, what they're provided with from a training perspective, feedback perspective, that loop. Um, and we want to make sure that they are also feeling uh, that we're here to help them add a little more heart to life and that we're here to provide a little more heart to their life. So it is there is a value in the entire process when you're thinking about it's not just our job to push that out to the consumer, which it is, but it's also our job to assure that the people that work at our company feel that same mission. Um, and that increases the engagement and it, it improves our retention. Um, and the days are busy, 
but often we hear that they're fun and that they're just as excited to see that child smile as I'm excited to hear a story about how they made the child smile. Um, we, we're there to make your day a little bit better. So even your worst day, um, possibly, or a pretty bad day, sometimes people come in to help build a bear, cheer them up. Um, or maybe for a kid, their best day ever, like their birthday, they come in and it makes the day a little bit better. So I think that at the, and I'm sure you've heard this before, when companies are able to find mission statements that are bigger than themselves, mm. it often gives employees um, a belief structure, particularly if you act on those missions with consistency and, um, and honesty. I think that it provides your employees and your uh, associates with uh, reasons to believe that are greater than, than the transactional aspect of your company. Beautifully said, we would concur. Okay, in a moment, I'm gonna talk about your experience with Undercover Boss. Before we go there, I'm gonna ask you to get a little bit vulnerable. And uh, we've talked a lot about the success of Build-A-Bear. It's undeniable. You can look at um, all the reports and good luck with your um, announcement of your most recent results. Let's talk about lessons learned. Uh, uh, at one point, Build-A-Bear had a campaign. I think it might've been three, four years ago, something loosely tied to pay your age, whatever that was. It was all over the news, spectacular opportunity bit of a kerfluffle in terms of the amount of positive interest in that. I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons and I don't so much care about what went wrong or what went right. I'd like to know what maybe you could, maybe you can describe in a nutshell what you hoped would have happened, but what are some of the lessons you learned from that experience in terms of the planning, the architecture, the vision, the communication, the response, the recovery? What are some lessons you might learn from all parts of business that you could uh, impart with other leaders when they've got a big, bold idea. It sounds great in a boardroom or an executive team meeting, and then, you know, stuff happens and stuff goes sideways, unexpected things. What are some of the principles of leadership that you learned from that that others could, could um, benefit from? And maybe kind of recap the story about what I'm talking about. Yeah, we did uh, have an event that was meant to um, introduce a new promotion uh, that still exists today. And that promotion is a Count Your Candles teddy bear that's designed for a child of any age, um, real, practically though up to 14 because that's how much the bear actually costs. <laughs> so that you can come in during the, your birthday month and pay your age for the teddy bear. And you can do that to this day. So if you're turning one year old, one in January, one years old in January, you can come in and you're, you can pay $1 for your son or daughter to build their own bear. And we wanted to do that because we wanted to open the aperture of socioeconomic strata, availability, trial, um, to make sure that everybody had a chance to make their own special furry print. And we wanted to come up with a really impactful way to let people know that this is going to be a new thing that people could do um, for every, every day, any day, uh, if you indeed had your birthday in some specific month. So um, that was, this was the launching uh, marketing program to do that. And um, we had much more demand than we could have ever imagined based on any data that was available. So um, the lessons uh, or were more of what we did from a team 
uh, to come together and, and creation of a, a war room in the very early morning in, in the United States after we'd seen um, the overwhelming response uh, in the UK, um, working through some of the challenges in a real-time effort on um, some of the feedback that there were so many, so many lines and we did the quick calculation because we know about how long it takes to get people through our process that the, it was clear that the lines were too long for us to service everyone on that day. We did not run out of product as was misrepresented in the media. It was physically impossible for us to service everyone that showed up uh, to be able to pay their age for a Build-A-Bear product um, in that in the, between the time the mall was going to, from the time the mall opened to the time the mall was closing. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we um, were fair and responsible to those, to their fans that came out on that day. So offered um, a voucher uh, for all of those after counting out in every single one of our stores, our best estimate on how many people we would be able to service for the close of business that day and provided a voucher for anyone to come back uh, that was standing in line beyond that calculation. Um, and that's what we did. And you know, we went through all of that in real time effort um, with the team, with the communications, even sent out communication, encouraging people to not come uh, to that day. We did not do a significant amount of marketing actually. It was uh, a minimal amount of social media posts um, so it was, it was a situation that because of the power of the brand, most likely, um, it went viral and, um, we tried to deal with it as best that we could under those circumstances. Um, and I was on national television the next morning, uh, in New York on the Today Show, um, because I think it was important for, uh, the consumers to understand that there was uh, as Willie said, Willie Guy said, you know, no, no, no ill intent. Um, Build-A-Bear has a long history of uh, creating really positive uh, relationships with consumers and um, doing our best to do the right thing. Um, but I wanted people to know that that voucher was available for those that were unable to, to get their bear that day. Uh, nicely recapped, I remember your interview in the Today Show, and I remember thinking in Salt Lake City, oh, how do you fault them? I mean, that's a great idea that just overwhelmed them. And so I think you all came out hopefully uh, uh, endeared to a lot of millions of people that were wanting to take advantage of that. With the benefit of hindsight now, like years later, anything that you might say, gosh, if we would have done this or we would have done that, or if any other company is thinking about something that might go viral in a positive way, Anything that you might do differently in the future, if you thought that you might have the same overwhelming brand loyalty of customers coming out of the woodwork to participate? Everybody's, every company's dream come true, right? Yeah, you know, well, when you say it that way, um, one of the things that we've looked at from a hindsight perspective, even though we would, we never want anyone to be disappointed at Build-A-Bear, there's literally nothing um, from a store perspective or from a, uh, a the from taking it from a job point of view that our bear builders um, dislike more than disappointing, particularly sure. a child. Sure. 
Um, you know, that's just that's you know, you, you don't work at Build a Bear for as many years as so many of our associates do without having a, a genuine desire to make kids happy. Uh, it's sort of like innate, it's in our DNA. Um, so we, we, I honestly, and this is probably one of the most, uh, you know, kind of, if you think about it, concerning things in some ways, but not so much in others. Um, we did the calculations the right way. <laughs> so um, based on the most successful uh, promotions we'd ever had in our history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, again, on the hindsight, though, it was a almost a wake up call to us on just how extraordinary and the, the, the emotion that people have for our brand that perhaps we didn't realize or didn't realize that that it was still as strong as it was. Um, Very validating. Yeah, in some ways, but you hate to say it that course, way because of course. Yeah. you never want yeah. to think about something where anyone was disappointed as something that may have provided an insight. But um, but the the brand really uh, showed extraordinary um, just power in that moment. Resilience. Well, thanks for letting me talk about that. I, I think uh, every company's uh, uh, best moment is when they have something perhaps, quote, go viral, which things never do. But when they do go viral, it's usually unexpected, it's serendipitous, it's usually not um, because the company tried to make it go viral, it's because other forces were in nature. And so congrats on, on uh, doing your best to uh, uh, leverage yeah, the insight. From some lessons learned, I think that the leadership team um, pivoted and elevated uh, in that moment. And it was so interesting uh, to watch how we almost instinctively got in our lanes and had such tremendous trust. It's actually one of the Covey books is the, the power the speed of the, trust, uh, right? The speed of trust. Yes, yeah. the speed of trust. And we were able to trust each other in our own areas of expertise and operate at very high level uh, with a, a lot of speed um, because, because of that, because of our interpersonal relationships and the work that we had done together. Um, and that experience was um, actually something that we pulled a page from uh, on uh, when COVID hit. Okay, let's talk about Undercover Boss. Thank, by the way, thank you for the plug on The Speed of Trust. Great book. Uh, Undercover Boss, why did you do it? What surprised you? And how are you different because of it? Why did you do it? What surprised you? And how are you different because of it? So I did it after a lot of counsel with my PR team um, on us trying to sort of, uh, you know, assess, you know, what, what's, you know, what's the outcome? What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, how, how's this going to work? What, what is, what is, what's the real underlying objective here? And it's, uh, it's a funny story. We binge watched myself, like some, this head of strategy, PR league, we had binge watched some undercover boss and 
the response was, you know, I think, you know, the, the only time that, you know, because sometimes there's some really pivotal moments and sometimes things aren't that flattering. Um, although they're, I, we don't believe that that's the intention. That's just what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's um, that my, my head, my head of PR decided, you know, that, you know, I was going to be fine because, you know, it, it's what the, what really happens is the real you comes out. And she was so kind. She's like, and the real you is great. So it's going to be okay. Just get on there and be you. And that was what was really uh, fun about it. Uh, when, she, when she decided that, she kind of took this sort of strategic assessment and said, it's okay. They can, you can move from location to location. You can be put in these difficult situations and it's all going to be okay. We trust that it's all going to be okay. Um, and then I wanted to do it for the reasons that they say I wanted to do it, which was we had just gone through rolling out all new stores, um, pushing out a new service model under my leadership, uh, the beginnings of a financial turnaround. And one of the things that was really tough with turning around a company like Build-A-Bear is I walked into a founder-led environment. Um, but it was a founder-led environment that was that was struggling financially after the retail, the first, the, excuse me, the retail recession um, and had not uh, really returned to some of the heights that it had enjoyed in its early days, particularly after um, it went public. And um, it's hard to bring people along with you under those circumstances where there's a lot of emotional connection to the what was. Uh, and you, it, it requires people to believe in the new vision and to believe in the new leader. Uh, and I, I wanted to understand the dynamics um, because it's one thing if you're in the headquarters or what we call the bear quarters all the time, talking to people about do they understand the strategy? Do they understand the concept of freedom within frames? Do they really know the why behind what, what we're trying to do? And when we're changing this or changing that, that is for the good of the company, that is not just change for change's sake. Um, and sometimes you really do not understand that until you're willing to get into the field. Tell me how you're different as a result of your undercover boss experience. Um, I, I really got the answers to some of that. And the, the truth is that there were some cases where people really did understand what we were doing and why we were doing it. In some cases, they did not. And that we could do a better job communicating the why behind some of the sh shifts and changes. And that, that is mo more likely that people would embrace that. But also, it was important to assure that we created an open communication pipeline right back to us so that we can evolve and learn from the people that are at the field in a more uh, real-time way. And that for them to understand that they had access and almost permission to do that, that this is not a one-way street, that it is a two-way street. And even though that was never the intention, um, in some cases, that's the way they felt like that, that, that the changes were coming at them. And so we did um, evolve our communications policy to assure that people were a part of, or felt as if more that they were a part of the evolution of the company, which was necessary to survive.
we know whether it's scripted television or it's reality TV, lots of editing goes on. Did anything fun or surprising happen when you found out? Was there anything that didn't make it um, into the final cut that happened that you might share with us? Well, what they, um, what they do if somebody recognizes me is they have to intervene. And we did have a situation where there was an employee, a bear builder that recognized me. And she asked the manager, because in some uh, the district manager that was with us, because that we had to have at least some internal people that were knowledgeable of the process. And they're, I, they're, it's almost like they were like tackled, secured, removed, you know, taken to a van. <laughs> and then, so as not to, so uh, as not to let the surprise out for the other colleagues around you. Correct, yes, because right. the whole shoot would just go, right. you know, we'd be right. off kilter. We'd have to find an additional location in that particular, you know, area that right. we're in. We'd have to be scrapped. Right. So um, if they like decided to like yell out, you know, oh my God, that's it's her, it. it's her. <laughs> and so we had the. Um, you know, sort of an RV where we were set up out in the for the prisoners, lot. for the for the yeah, wise for, prisoners. <laughs> they were, they were. I got to go out and sit down and yeah. speak with them and talk to them about why you know have this one-on-one yes. with this builder and explain really what was going on and why they can't tell anyone. And it was really really sweet. It was great to be able to meet them. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that, uh, Sharon Price, John, CEO and president of Build-A-Bear Workshops. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate you coming on. It's nice sometimes to have uh, a little lighter conversation with a very serious CEO and very competent CEO and a business like ours that is heavily mission-driven and bringing joy to so many people's lives. I appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.